Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. I had a woman after the NPR interview who reached out and told me she pulled over on the side of the road and she just cried because, mm -hmm. you know, I was talking about being a young mother, something that she felt like she could never talk about because of the stigma and the shame that was associated with that. Okay, we are live and I am talking today with someone who is a real hero of mine. This is Frank Schaefer. You are either watching this on Facebook or YouTube or listening to it as a podcast or all the other interweb places. And um, I often introduce people as friends or as people I admire. But uh, Nicole, uh, who is with us today, um, Lynn Lewis is the author of a wonderful book that we're going to be talking about a lot. But I have to just say something right up front, Nicole, that I don't know if you know this. Um, I've got a new book coming out this November that talks about childcare. And I was in the last draft when I heard you on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, which I listened to while doing the school pickup for my granddaughter, Nora. And I've been, I've been on Fresh Air several years ago with a memoir I wrote called Crazy for God. And I liked Terry a lot. And she interviewed you beautifully. And you're talking about finding a man who irons his own shirts. And you're talking about your book and and the experience you had in college as, as a young mom in the winter and your daughter is you know getting sick and maybe pneumonia and this callous teacher is treating you badly. And I'm just sitting there going, you know, I, I wanted to, to call you up and say, say, tell me where your enemies live because I was <laughs> so into it. So when it was done, I looked up to see when the book was coming out and it had either just come out or it was coming out the next week and I ordered it on Kindle and I want to get the name right so I'm going to read it here because I screw everything up so let me get this right it is pregnant girl and the subtitle is a story of motherhood college and creating a better future for young families and I'm going to talk about this book a lot so I got the book and I literally did what people do mythologically but in my case was true I sat up and I read it cover to cover and I started highlighting passages and I called my editor, and the book was in the final draft, and I said, I'm sorry, the book cannot come out in October. You're going to have to bump it because I need to include quotes and references oh. to this book in my book. Hold it. So like a scene in an old movie, hold the press. <laughs> so I delayed. I mean, wow. you know, you give other authors compliments, but when you delay the release of your own book. Absolutely. Okay, so before, before I get into anything else on this, I am going to read something I wrote about you, which says it better um, out of my book, uh, which fits in with your book, by the way. Uh, the title of my book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, and it comes out November 2nd. And in the introduction, and by the way, you, I talk about you in the book, uh, I think four or five times. Wow. I have some quotes. And I put you right into my introduction. Like you help, you know, I, I, I get you to help craft my book by putting this on page 26 and 27. I don't know if you can see this. And it says right here, um, my hero, Nicole Lynn Lewis. Oh, That's wow. That's the subtitle in case anybody mistakes where I'm coming from. When I compare my journey to that of many other people who face struggles and young parenthood and less privileged circumstances, I feel ashamed to even describe my life as a struggle. For instance, a hero of mine is Nicole Lynn Lewis. Lewis serves as the chief executive officer of Generation Hope, an organization she founded in 2010. She is author of the memoir, Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college and creating a better future for young families. 
Generation Hope's mission is to surround teen parents and their children with mentors, emotional support, and financial resources that they need to thrive in college. This supportive, compassionate vision is the result of Lewis's own struggle as a young parent, which she describes so movingly in Pregnant Girl. Lewis calls for better support of young families so they can thrive. She reflects on her experiences as a black mother who got pregnant at age 17, which by the way, is the same age that I got my girlfriend, Jeannie, pregnant. Wow. Is why you sort of jumped off the page. To yeah. Me. And found herself as a college student fighting for opportunities for herself and her child in a system that had little to no room or sympathy for people like her. And since my book is a journey of what I call reparenting through your grandchildren, doing what I wish I'd done the first time around, beginning with getting my girlfriend, Jeannie, who I've been with 52 years now, pregnant when we were 17 and 18. Wow. Say that your book, Pregnant Girl, resonated with me is like an understatement. I held the presses. I rewrote sections of the book. And I talk about you about four or five times through the book, including quotes. So I just want to say, all hyperbole aside, you know, all BS aside, you genuinely are a hero of mine. I love your book. I don't Thank like it. So I love it. <laughs> and, and I was, it came like a kind of a, I don't know how to put this. You know how when you're working on a long project and you wonder if there's anybody else out there. When mm -hmm. I heard you on Fresh Air, it was like the cavalry has arrived. Wow. And I found my project's guardian angel in you. Okay, now I'll shut up before I sound crazy. <laughs> Let me just thank you for writing the book. And let me start by asking you, um, I heard you on Fresh Air and I know you've done all sorts of things. I follow you on Twitter. Uh, how is the book being received? I know it's being received well, but how is it being received? Yeah, um, well, first of all, I have to say thank you for those kind words. And I'm so glad that you reached out and just shared your story with me. And I felt that connection as we, as you talked about your journey as young parents. Um, so I'm really glad to be here. Um, the book has been, it's, it's, I, I've had so many pinch myself moments, um, you know, in terms of how this book has been received out in the world. I mean, interviewing with Terry Gross, you know, on Fresh Air and, um, and, you know, uh, being, uh, the book was Steph Curry, the NBA players, uh, his September book club pick, um, you know, last month, um, New York Times review. I mean, things that I never imagined when I yeah. first started writing this book. And um, I think what has been the most amazing part of how this book has been received is, is people reaching out all over the country mm -hmm. um, and saying like, this is my story. And um, I had a woman after the NPR interview who reached out and told me she pulled over on the side of the road and she just cried because, mm -hmm. you know, I was talking about, being a young mother, something that she felt like she could never talk about because of the stigma and the shame that was associated with yeah. that. And just, I think those are the most heartwarming, amazing moments of all of this is just the connection with people all over the country. Well, you know, something I'd just like to add, I've written maybe 15, 16 books, and I've had a couple bestsellers and some that have sunk like stones into a <laughs> pond, leaving no ripple whatsoever. It's like, what the hell happened there? <laughs> So it isn't like all success stories, but if I may humbly say, um, you're a real writer. There's a lot of people who write books about a life experience or they're a celebrity author or they have one thing they write about. I hope someday to read a novel by you. I hope you keep writing because you've really got the chops. I mean, from my humble opinion, one of the reasons your book is so powerful is that it's not just the story drew me in, your writing draws me in. I love your writing. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I try to, I try to write the book that I would want to read. <laughs> you know, yeah. That's important well, you did to it. me, right? Like, what you is a, what would I want to read? How would I want to be brought into a story? And mm. and so that's kind of as I write, that's what I ask myself. Like, how would I want to, mm. you know, experience the story? But I hope to keep writing. I would love for this Please to be do. the first of many. Well, um, I don't you know, know, maybe one got, day, 15 or 16. <laughs> yeah, you've got, all, you've got all these wonderful stories, of course, in your book about yourself and hard stories like the one, you know, where you're in a college class with an unsympathetic teacher who makes you bring a sick child and that mm -hmm. kind of level of disrespect. And I, you know, I'm sitting there reading this wondering, is that because you're black? Is that because you're a woman? Is that because you're a young mom? And I, I figured it all of the above. 
Mm. Um, and I can just remember as a teenage father sitting with my wife while our baby was being born in Switzerland of all places, and just how the midwife and the doctors treated us pretty disrespectfully. Like, what do you mm -hmm. think you're doing? They were not gentle and, and we're white and, and in a privileged position. And I can only imagine the crap you had to put up with, even the nonverbal stuff, the looks and everything else. Um, and and I, I want you to talk a little bit about that part of the experience because, you know, aside from everything else, just the experience of young parenthood, which I've been through as a teen father myself, um, with a teenage girl bearing a child and trying then to, you know, put the rest of our lives back together. I think that part of your story is really interesting, but it's also a comment on the rest of our culture and the way our culture is so anti-family. You know, they talk about pro-life, they talk about family values, and I'll just lay it out here. I think if you designed a society that essentially looked as if it hated children and mothers and families, the United States of America right now would be it. No support, no help. One thing that strikes me about Generation Hope is you're doing the job that any good society would already have been doing. Right, right, yeah. So yeah. riff on all that, I asked, I said <laughs> No, it's a lot there, but I think you're spot on. I mean, I, it's interesting. I, I was just on a call uh, yesterday with um, um, some folks from a college that had read Pregnant Girl as a part of their book club. And um, two women on the call talked about how they went to college in their 40s. And they were student parents, you know, they had children, um, but, you know, the reception that they got was, wow, this is great, right? Like, good for you. And these are two white women. Yeah. Um, and they talked about how th they, in my book, realized the disparity and how young uh, mothers of color, fathers of color yeah. are treated when they go to get their education versus white women, you know, older white women who maybe, you know, have been homemakers or, sure. you know, they're changing careers and, and our parents and mothers. So um, I think absolutely within the student parent kind of umbrella as students of color, you're definitely treated differently. And yes. it's almost... Um, the layers of uh, othering that you have, right? You yeah. are a, a young parent, which carries its own stigma. You are a woman, which carries its own stigma. You are a, um, uh, you know, a, a black student, a brown student, you know, all of those things. And I describe it in, in Pregnant Girl as, as a scarlet letter, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can't hide the fact that you're parenting. You can't hide the fact that you're a student of color. So people make assumptions about you. They're looking at you. They're casting judgment on you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, people looked at me walking around campus as a Black student at William & Mary already having assumptions about whether or not I had earned my place at that college, you know, such a prestigious school, never mind having my daughter, my toddler, like walking hand in hand with me. Um, you know, that really, I think, challenged people in a lot of different ways. So it's, it's extremely difficult um, to not just be a student parent or a young parent, but to be uh, a student of color and have all those layers happening at the same time. Yeah, just remind people you're watching In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. My guest is Nicole Lynn Lewis. And she is the founder uh, and CEO of, uh, and I'm getting the name right because I said it wrong before, Generation Hope. And yeah. we're talking about her book, uh, Pregnant Girl, and about her, her life. You know, when I got Jeannie pregnant, when we were 17 and 18, back in 1968, um, we were, I, I'm the son of a, of a fundamentalist Protestant missionary. We were in Switzerland. Yeah. So it was in a small fundamentalist community. And, um, but you know, what was interesting about that is we got a lot of support because uh, one of the one of the good parts of that community is that there was some backup for people. And because we did the quote right thing and got married, mm -hmm. and that's not why we got married. Jeannie and I were in love then we're in love now. We were fortunate. Yeah. We were I mean, that's just luck. I mean, who were those kids? I have no idea. But we're <laughs> But the grown-up lady I live with right now, you know, before I drove down here to New York this morning and set up for this podcast, I got up a little earlier so I could clean the kitchen. So I don't iron my own shirts like the person, the man in your book does, <laughs> but I do clean the kitchen. That's, anyway, that's also um, great. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm trying to say is, is that 
I have left that evangelical path and I'm on the progressive side of politics and I was on the right wing back in the 70s and 80s and my father was a very famous right wing activist at that time. But what was interesting is that we got the kind of support you didn't get because in that little Christian community, um, they kind of circled the wagons and we lived in a welfare state, which was so crazy because my dad became a leader of the religious right. Now it's all against, you know, they call anything socialism to help people, but they paid our medical bills. We had a free place to live. Wow. Um, my parents hired a tutor so I can continue with my education as a teen father who also was working. Um, we were given access to the communal dining room and I had three sisters all with children living on the same in the same community. So there was no question of babysitting and help right. and advice. And so, yeah, you know, as a fundamentalist child of a missionary getting your, this girlfriend pregnant, it was totally frowned upon. But on the other hand, when the, when, when the chips were down, we got the kind of support that you're actually providing for people through your organization. So let me just ask, um, if you wrote another book, would you tell some of those stories? Because I love to see the posts you put on Twitter and other places about some of the things you're doing, but also just some of the people you've been working with, some of the young people. Can you talk about them a little bit and the support you give them, um, you know, which I was so fortunate to get and you, you got in, in some ways from your mom, but not from the school or anybody official. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think to your earlier point, you know, well, we, ha we talk about family, but, and supporting family, but we are talking about certain families, yes. you know, we're not talking about all families and mm -hmm. certainly young families, um, particularly if you're low income, if you're, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a student of color, or a young person of color, those are not the families that we as a society are comfortable with, you know, saying, Hey, we're going to rally around you. We're going to provide you with resources that can make sure that you are able to thrive yeah. like you were able to do. And Jeannie was able to do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's really what we do at Generation Hope every day. We are a, a holistic wraparound uh, model for our families. There's really nothing that is off the table for them to come to us and say, hey, I need help with, right? Because anything yeah. can derail you from college as a parent. It could be a domestic violence situation. It could be housing. Um, so we do the academic help you pick your classes kind of stuff, but we're mm. also in the trenches with you if you have any sort of life interruption. Mm. Um, and then we're also, you know, we are a two gen model in that we're not just focusing on the parent, but we're also focusing on the child's academic success because it's really hard to be successful as a parent if you're worried about your child and whether they're getting, you know, the academic supports that they need. So we're really holistically supporting the entire family. And um, it's been, you know, I started the organization in 2010. It's, it's been an incredible journey just to grow this organization and to be able to innovate in the ways that um, we've been able to innovate and, and have a lot of it grow out of my own experience as a young mother. But, mm. but now what is really driving our work is the voices of our, our scholars, are the voices of our scholars. And um, they are just incredible. And, and mm. I do weave some of their stories throughout Pregnant Girl. Um, but absolutely, I think there's an opportunity for us to continue to kind of show Generation Hope as a national model yes. for how to do this work. And, um, and to show our students as just incredibly resilient and fought and flying in the face of so many of the stereotypes that are mm. out there. 90% of our students are students of color. Yep. And so, um, you know, every day they are, uh, you know, proving all of these stereotypes wrong in, yes. in various ways, um, whether it's, you know, young fathers uh, are not committed to their families or young parents and parenting students don't care about, you know, going to college um, every day they're breaking through those stereotypes and, and it's an honor to, to be able to work with them. Well, you know, we'll, we'll get back to the interview here in a minute, but just to pause and say something, obviously we are going to be linking everything that we're doing today when it goes on podcast or on YouTube or on Facebook, Ernie, my producer and friend will be linking to everything you do. So those who want to support you and follow mm -hmm. you are going to have an easy time doing so. And I would encourage everybody to do that. But I wanted to just mention something to you and you can pass this on to Grace Mangino, your assistant, executive assistant, who very kindly set everything up. And we love Grace because she yes. always responds. <laughs> Grace is great. Ernie is my Grace. You have great Grace is your Grace. 
without grace and earning nothing happens exactly uh, but anyway so thank grace for me she's been wonderful to work with but uh, i will definitely do that grace and you together can think about something and that is that i would love to tell some of those stories by interviewing some of those younger people hmm. so if you have a young father who's who's breaking those stereotypes you have a young mother and on my program having written a book myself about child care rooted in 12 years of taking care of three of my five grandchildren because my son who was in the marine corps and fought in afghanistan lives across the road and he and his wife work full time and rather than putting them in preschool or something like that Jeannie and i kind of took a semi-early retirement and we just became the child care people not because we had to but we wanted to we wanted another bite at that apple uh -huh. we, we've loved it but um the funny thing is when I talk with young parents, with young kids, they think, oh, well, you're older and that was years ago for you. But actually, I understand what they're doing better than a lot of their contemporaries do because I'm planning school pickups for a seven-year-old. I've mm -hmm. been taking care of toddlers, um, you know, giving baths, changing diapers, reading stories, taking them out, fighting to have times in nature away from screens, all that stuff. So the weird thing is in, in, in some ways, I know this sounds odd, but as a as an old white guy pushing 70, I have more in common with some young mom or dad uh, walking down the street pushing a stroller than I do with people my age because right. so, so few grandparents yes. are as involved as I am, which is part of my book saying, what's wrong with you people? This is the these are the best years of my life. I love helping with childcare. Mm. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. And I'm running, by the way, I'm running out of babies because- <laughs> Nora's my youngest now and she's seven and I don't know what I'm gonna do so I'm I you know I'm hoping that um somebody needs some help nearby but <laughs> anyway that was a long way of saying that if you have if, if you Nicole or Grace thinks of someone or a story because I know you post things and you'd say you know this would make a good interview or a group yeah. two or three think of us because I would love to promote what you're doing and I'd love to do it by talking to the people you're helping from no, a college I dorm we're yes. from home. And if yes. they want to hold their baby while they talk, fine. No, I love that. And that's a big part of, you know, what we believe is really going to be impactful in this work is, is having our students share their stories. You know, I well, let them people, share them on my podcast. And yeah, we'll, promote we'll definitely the heck out talk of them. about it. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about it. It's, set it's set it up. Get, yeah, well, let's work on that because I'd make that a regular feature. I don't mean mm -hmm. a one-time thing. I, I would, you know, if I did five or 10 podcasts a year with young people you're helping yeah no i think we should definitely talk about it i'd love to do that yeah so anyway that enough said let me just read something else um where i quote you um this comes later 100 page 172 um in a chapter in my book called a loneliness Ap epidemic and 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 i managed to find a way that i think you fit very well in with that um as we have seen there is very little support there, there was very little support for Nicole Lewis when she attended college with a child in tow. Lewis is working to change that because so few others, let alone the government, stepped up. Generation Hope relies, rallies around teen parents to help them earn college degrees to forge a path to economic opportunity. Generation Hope is now expanding its work with young parents beyond the DC region by sharing its best practices to help colleges, universities, and other schools across the country better meet the needs of nearly 4 million parenting students, an amazing number, by the way, who are working toward their degrees. In just 10 years, Lewis has created a unique and thriving organization that has, is gaining national attention for whole family approach to dismantling poverty. And then here's my question, but why isn't this a program on the level of social security? So I'm going to ask you that. I mean, what is wrong with our legislative program that it comes down to Nicole Lynn Lewis <laughs> doing what any, what any sane, decent, compassionate, empathetic society would have already been doing? Duh, no brainer. You know, obviously this is going to pay for itself dividends for decades as you go down the generations. What is wrong with the United States of America today, Nicole, as we talk together? that this isn't so obvious that every single federal program already is dedicated to this and all the states also picking up the slack. Why are you doing this? And why hasn't the government done this? What is the problem? 
Well, I think there's so many reasons. I, I think taking a big step back, mm. um, our higher ed system, you know, was not designed for the majority of today's college students. It was designed for a very uh, a narrow population, really white males. And yeah. um, the early colonial colleges, one of which I attended, the College yes. of William and Mary, um, really they they solidified the DNA for our higher ed system in this country. And um, and you know, William and Mary had a tobacco plantation with slaves that worked that mm -hmm. plantation. You could bring your slave to campus with you, um, you know, in in its early days. Um, so all of that, you know, when we think about how do we transform a higher education system to now serve students of color, parenting students, first generation students, um, uh, you know, the list goes on and on in terms of groups that have been pushed to the fringes. Um, it's a, a huge shift that really needs to take place because our entire system is designed without those students in mind. And, um, you know, from a policy perspective, our policy has followed that DNA of mm. the college, you know, the way that our higher ed system is set up. Um, so it is not looking at this incredible opportunity that we have with a population like parenting college students and saying, you know, imagine the, the return on investment if we mm. remove barriers for this population to go to college and to complete college, the generational impacts that would happen um, you know, it's not just a benefit to that parent, but it's a benefit to their child. My daughter, who was three months old when I started at William & Mary, is now in her senior year of college. Um, and so, you know, my, my life is an example of what can happen when we remove these barriers and when we invest in this population. Mm. But the reality is, is that a huge shift needs to take place and an acknowledgement of the fact that there, there, these policies and these practices have been, you know, really exclusive and they mm. have been oppressive at times um, and, and have kind of intentionally left too many students behind. Mm -hmm. That all needs to be named and recognized and acknowledged and um, at an institutional level and then at a federal and local and state level. And, and so there's a lot of, of shifting that yeah. needs to happen to get us to that place. Yeah, I'd make a couple of comments. One is that one of the conceits of the university world, and I do quite a bit of speaking on campuses around the country and have for years as an author, uh, you know, piecing together an income for my family while my books sink like stone into ponds, <laughs> leaving no ripples except for a few bestsellers. Um, by the way, Pregnant Girl was chosen by uh, Stephen Curry as his, uh, at, at his, I guess it's called the Literati Book Club pick for September. So yes. congratulations on Thank that. Thank you for that. Yeah. I resent most authors' successes, but not yours. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> like there's, you know, people tell me I'm going to write a book. It's like, don't write a book. You know, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a surgeon. Well, then I'm going to, you know, do cardiovascular surgery. I'm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Keep your day job. But in your case, because you're a really great writer, I don't resent it. But um, and you have a mission. But in any case, uh, what I wanted to say is I think there's also, to even step back further, we were talking about a culture designed by white men for white men. Yes. And that, of course, is the colleges. By the way, my dad went to college in the South in the 1920s and 30s at Hampton, Sydney. And I mm -hmm. visited years later as a featured speaker because he had become well-known. And after he passed, they brought me in to speak. And I visited the church and they had a slave gallery upstairs where the young gentleman, because it was a men's college at the beginning, could bring their personal servant slave they had quarters for them and they were allowed to come to church they had to sit upstairs in the balcony wow. and, it was, and when you look at the dates it's so recent that it's just shocking because you yeah. know my father was there in the 20s and 30s and there were caretakers on the grounds in those days who had been there as slaves originally which is pretty mind-blowing it's that recent yeah but anyway change the subject um it, to back off the, what you were saying i think there's a, a another another frame also engineered by white interests and white men. And that is the business, the way the business community is structured. And so for instance, my daughter happens to be a CEO here in New York City at a company that does investment packages for environmental company, for mm -hmm. environmental uh, energy policy type stuff. And she was saying, you know, until COVID came along, you kind of had to hide the fact you even had a family. You go yeah. to a meeting, you don't say you're doing a school pickup. Oh no, I'm in the office. You have right. to lie because families aren't cool. It's a, 
designed by 1940s and 1950 white businessmen who pretend they don't even have wives and children or families, let alone any other obligation. And so, you know, women are told, well, you can play in our, our you can play in the play park now, but you got to do it, pretend as if you're a white man in 1950 to do this. Right. Don't talk about school pickups. Don't talk about a room to breastfeed in. Don't talk about pumping milk at work. Don't talk about the fact you're having your period and don't want to take a meeting. Um, pretend you're a white man and we'll sort of let you in the door. Right. And, and then it must just quadruple infinitely when now you're a black woman on top of that. Right. And so it isn't just that our culture doesn't have room for a mother in college, white or black, let alone black. It's that the business world tells that woman later, what are you even doing with the child? You should wait until you have IVF when you're 47 and your biological clock is almost ticked over because we want to squeeze all the juice out of the best part of your life. And we don't want it going to, we don't trust women. We don't right. want them to become business people. You might go have a baby. Right. So there's, you know, it's not just in the colleges. There's no room in this culture for families, period. And that goes for men who want to take paternity leave for more than a couple of weeks say, I want to stay home with and help with my toddlers for two years. And by the way, when I come back, I still want to have a job and I don't want to lose credibility. There's no room for them either. No, no, I think you, I mean, you're spot on and you're absolutely right. And I think the pandemic has really shown, you know, how bad and devastating that, that structure of things has been for yeah. our country. Cause you know, you look at how families have fared in this and it's been devastating because, yeah. you know, we already had a really fragile uh, yeah. child care system. We already had, uh, like you said, a, a, a working yeah. environment that didn't celebrate family that didn't, I mean, think about you would show up to work sick because you were afraid you would lose your job. I mean, you, you would sometimes have your kids go to school sick because yep. you were afraid you were going to lose your job. Um, and now the pandemic really showed that that is not healthy. It's not how we should be running our country. It's not what we should value. Um, and I think, um, particularly when you look at who has suffered the most in the pandemic, um, it has been mothers, black and brown mothers, and um, even the most significant employment losses have been specifically for young mothers. Yeah. So when we think about who is most impacted by that structure, you know, that too. There's an interesting statistic that I cited in my book that I got out of an article in the New York Times by someone very credible. It wasn't an op-ed or something. It was like real science-y stuff. And then it kind of disappeared as a news story. And I think because it didn't fit anybody's agenda. Mm. It was just kind of like a little fact that got floated out there. And then I never heard about it again. And I'm always suspicious when something gets my attention, like, wow, are you kidding me? And then it's like, wait a minute, did I really read that? Oh yeah, I did. And I quoted it in my book. And that is that um, doctors around uh, the U.S. and also in other parts of the world where they were keeping statistics said that the, the article was where have all the preemies gone? And because there were so many women who were at home resting and taking better care of themselves because they were stuck, nobody, un nobody realized that actually the, the number of premature births and miscarriages plummeted. And one of the statistics they kept was right here in New York City, where I'm sitting right now doing this interview with you in a friend's apartment. Um, I live in northern Massachusetts. but And I, I read that, and these were documented. And it wasn't just hearsay. It was actually numbers because uh, Scandinavian countries, France, Switzerland, Germany, America, we keep track of um, health issues enough so that we know how many premature babies there are at any given time. But just think about that. So basically... Um, the very thing corporate America won't do for a pregnant woman, COVID forced on us. Right. And that is, uh, you're pregnant, you know, we're not going to make you hustle and come and come back to work too quickly, or this, that you're going to actually be able to get a little rest, not because we like you, but because we, we had to send you home now. Right. And I heard that and I thought, wow, I mean, once in a while, we get a memo from Mother Nature. Yeah. And, and I just looked at that thinking, yeah, that's a memo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I actually came across that same statistic too, somewhere maybe scrolling, um, yeah. you know, in, uh, on Twitter or something like that. And I, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's like, yeah. you, said, you know, um, you know, a generation hope, 
one of the things that I was really passionate about because I started Generation Hope with two daughters. You know, I had my oldest daughter, but then my my um, youngest daughter was 10 months old when I started Generation sure. Hope. So I wanted to build a culture, uh, you know, a, a work environment that was very family friendly, not only because of our mission, um, but because I had been in those situations where, you know, I had to, was forced to make those really difficult decisions between yeah. like, the health of my family and, you know, uh, my career. And so um, also, I think it speaks to we need to have more people with lived experiences, women in decision making, uh, you know, roles uh, throughout corporate America, throughout our working, you know, organizations to be able to say, this is how we're going to structure you know, our work life. This is how we're going to, you know, grow our company. We're going to value family. We're going to value that balance. Um, and, you know, uh, I mean, the statistics show that we just don't have that enough. You know, we, we have work to do there. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack. It has to be said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, and of course, it also is changing the culture of what's expected of men, because what's insane is I know, you know, my daughter, uh, her kids, um, who are now my two oldest grandchildren, she raised them basically in Scandinavia, in Finland. So there, you know, if you have a baby, there's a visiting nurse comes twice a week to check on you. You get a year of maternity and paternity leave and a wow. stipend from the government. So either the male or the female or the, bond, the pair bonded partners, lesbian, gay, whatever, somebody can stay home. They don't differentiate between the two. And it's against the law to mess with their job when they get back. And since enough men take it, there's no stigma. So wow. it's not like even it's a no brainer. Right. What's the result? lower maternity mortality rates, lower infant mortality rates, less miscarriages, less trouble during not just pregnancy, but uh, healthcare for young children and so forth. Why, why are things like that so far-fetched in, in our culture? It isn't just a question of family policy. It's a question of the way we define you, Nicole Lynn Lewis, as the CEO of Generation Hope instead of as a woman in a relationship we don't define your success by the quality of your relationship with the people you love. We define it by whether you've got a PhD or whether you are president of a company or a CEO. And I think the whole idea of success in the business community is what drives this kind of hard-assed college stigma too, because it's not about relationships. It's not about love. It's not about empathy. It's about a hard-driving economy that is geared to the GDP and will grind up anybody that gets in the way. And that includes a mom showing up in class with a sick baby one night mm -hmm. as you did, because what are you even doing here? And then you mix in the black thing and it's a whole even bigger thing. But it just seems to me, and I know I sound like a broken record, but our culture is geared against uh, looking at relationships, empathy and love as something real. And we treat them like a Disney fairy tale when of course science tells us, which is what I've been studying for the last five years for the project I'm involved with, that love is not only real, it is the motivation that evolution gave us for that 3 a.m. feeding. Right. To not just throw the baby out the window. It's the motivation that I've had to, to uh, stay married for 52 years and be forgiven by my wife after being an idiot uh, and, and, and being this sort of macho, a fool that came out of an evangelical background where men are supposed to be in charge of everything. And she gradually weaned me away from that idea of male supremacy and all this crap. But yeah. that's what I hope I'm remembered for a grandfather, a father that made mistakes with his kids and then turned around and tried to fix it. A man that, you know, brings his wife a cup of coffee in the morning because he's so damn grateful 
that she stuck with him through his stupid phase of thinking he's in charge of everything and bossing her around like a real idiot. Why didn't she leave? You know, well, because she's very strong and she hung in there and she loved me. You know, I don't, you know, that's what I would hope that my grandchildren would take away from our home. And I'm sure you're the same, but we're living in a stupid culture which is all about career definition. I want you to talk about that because I think your book gets into that obliquely, but the message is very similar to the one I'm, I'm trying to share here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I even think to your point, you know, one of the things that I'm asked a lot when it comes to why, how did I stay the course going to college as a mom, dealing with housing insecurity, dealing, dealing with food insecurity, you know, all of the things that were working against me, what kept me going it was my daughter, right? It was the, the motivation was my daughter and my love for her and wanting her to have the best life that she could possibly have. And, yep. um, you know, college was always um, a given for me when I was growing up, but it mm -hmm. changed when I became a mom. It was not just about me. It was now so much more important. It was now about my daughter and giving her the life that she deserved. And I think any young parent and any parenting student that you talk to mm. will tell you the same thing. You know, that's the biggest motivation is, is your is your child. So when you're thinking about what matters most in the world, what is yeah. most important, it is those relationships. And, um, you know, I tell people also, uh, my full-time job is mom. I have five children spanning from 22 to four months old. Um, and so that's my full-time job. That's my most important job. That's like you, I, I want to be remembered for being the best mom and wife that I can be. Yeah. Um, everything else is secondary to that. But like you said, that's not popular and mm. um, it's not valued, I think, in the way that it should be valued. And so I think that's all wrapped up in how do we treat young parents? How do we treat how do we talk about teen pregnancy? How do we treat parenting college students? Um, the policy changes that need to be in place to make sure that all families can really thrive. Um, you know, it's all wrapped up in that. Yeah, and speaking of which, you know, when, when people ask me, what do you do? Sometimes I'm interviewed on podcasts or TV or something. You know, I used to sort of cut to the more professional stuff. And now I say, well, you really want to know what I do? Or, you know, are you just asking how, I, how I'm employed or what my job is? Because I'll tell you what I do. And then I describe the childcare that I'm involved with, with my grandchildren. And I said, I've got to tell you, and I said this to an interviewer the other day, I said, I got to be honest with you. I really don't care about, you know, this interview and what you're asking me other than this. I said, I've got to tell you, if two lines were forming and at one was a red button, I pushed that. My next book is a bestseller and everything happens and you're interviewing me. And I said, if I had to choose between pushing that button or doing the school pickup today with Nora, I promise you, hand on heart, I'm taking Nora to the beach. I have her bathing suit in the back of the van. Her snack is packed. I would not, I wouldn't even be a thought in my mind to, to cancel that and do this other thing related to career because I'm seven, I'm gonna be 70 next year. And I can't remember any career milestones as important to me, but the fact that my 13-year-old granddaughter, uh, Lucy, who's the oldest of the three youngest, calls me and texts me with her news of who her friends are, what she's doing, and then on a weekend says, Bob, they call me Bob, B-A, I'm coming down to the barn because I have an old barn that I built a studio for the kids to do woodwork and stuff in next to my Hi. house. I'll be in the barn. If you see the light on, it's me. If you want to come by and say hi, that would be great. Now she's 13 when you start pulling away from people. That's my prize. That's my Pulitzer prize right there. And I'm being honest when I tell you in comparison, sure, I want my next book to sell, but in comparison with having that lively, wonderful, invigorating, youth prolonging relationship with a granddaughter who's at an age when people pull away and yet she still wants to be with her grandfather. All right. You know, that that's one I put on my on my punch list of like, okay, good. That worked. I'm glad. Yeah. I'm happy. And the other stuff is 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 interesting. It's great, but I totally get you what you're talking about being a, a, a mother first and so forth. And I am a grandfather first and a hands-on caregiver. And I think there's a lot of us out there, by the way, but we're told by the white controlled business community, oh, well, that's all nice stuff for you know. 
Christmas and vacations and all this stuff. But, you know, now let's get back to what's really important. And I don't think that stuff that's really important is really important. I think right. what we're talking about is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 100% agree. And I think, um, you know, that's the that's the work that we have to do. The change we have to create in the world is, is helping to get us back to what's most important and not the good old days, right? Because the good old right. days are, are really days that are just reinforcing that the, the structure that you just described. Um, it's, it's creating a new kind of version of this country that is, is really focused on exactly what you said, you know, the things that are most important and, and relationships and people and, and mm. family and love. And, um, and I'm hoping that the book Pregnant Girl, you know, contributes to that, that it helps people think differently and challenges our notions about what is normal and what is right and, you know, all of that. Well, I think it does. And, you know, it spoke to me so deeply. I mean, here we are, you're much younger than me. Um, and you look much younger. It seems crazy that you have children. But of course, I, I started young too. So, you know, <laughs> people see my 28 year old granddaughter, Amanda, and they say, well, what's going on here? And I say, yeah, that's my granddaughter. I say, look, I got Jeannie pregnant at 17. Uh, Jessica dropped out of NYU at, at uh, 20, went to Finland, had a baby at 22. Do the math, you know, you can have right, granddaughters. Yeah. So anyway, I get it. But what's interesting to me about your book, Pregnant Girl, is that it affirms, you know, it, I, I think the social scientist type people in Washington probably get like the idea that you're helping kids go through college. I read it a different way. And that is you are affirming a much more basic life decision. And that is that parenthood is actually a good thing. Not right. like, oh, this was a tragedy, but we're going to help you get through this accident and go to school anyway and move, you know, get your kid in childcare as soon as you can so you can go have that big, important career. Your message is, wait a minute, you were lucky to have this child. And now let's make the rest of your life work to support this because you're fortunate you've stumbled into something wonderful. And that's what I took from your book, you know, that you stumbled into something wonderful. And that, that includes all the hard stuff, but that you've come out the other side of that as this kind of luminous example of not turning something bad into something good because you went to school, but looking at this life as something wonderful of being a mother, a parent, a spouse, in a partnered relationship that's working. And, and, and so I take away from Pregnant Girl this life-affirming, beautiful, glowing example of everything I care about. So to me, the book is terribly moving that way. And I, yeah, I'm glad people go to school and I want people to finish high school and so on and so on. But what I love about your book is the warmth toward the relationships. Thank you. No, that means a lot. And you know, I, I do think that so much of our response to teen pregnancy is exactly that. You made a mistake. You, you know, this horrible thing has happened. Now we got to fix it. And, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, something I even say in the book is that, you know, teen parents are not a problem to be fixed. Right. I read that yeah. line. I underlined it about 20 times and I right. showed Jeannie. <laughs> yes. And that's the way we look at, you know, young parents and, yeah. um, and it's damaging and it communicates so much, um, it communicates that something is wrong with you. Yeah. And so we, you know, I, I think to your point is um, somebody, one of my colleagues read the book early on and described it as a love letter to young families and young yes. families. And I hope it is because as you said, I, I want it to challenge that way that we talk about them, that we respond to them and to really say that you're loved and, and you're, you're already amazing just as you are. And yeah. what, what we do at Generation Hope is, is when they say, hey, I want to go to college, we say, okay, let's, let's do that. Let's remove mm -hmm. the barriers to help you get there. Sure. Um, but, but I also want to remind them that even without the degree, they mm -hmm. are incredible. They are yeah. amazing. They're doing wonderful things. And sometimes you get so stuck on the next step and that degree is like, okay, once I get that degree, then I'll be accomplished, amazing, you know, all of those things. And, and I want them to know that in the moment right now, they are incredible and amazing right now, yeah. um, which I don't think I probably told myself enough when I was in their shoes. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and I love that aspect of your book. And I just think it's such a wonderful thing to pass on to people, whether it's from you or me or anybody else listening. And that is, as I, as I look back at my life and I read Nicole's book, I don't see getting pregnant at 17 and 18 as a tragedy that we then had to live down and figure out how to get around. I see it the exact opposite. And that is that, you know, I have friends, many friends, and as I'm sure you do, um, you know, who sort of waited till they were 47 and decided to try to have a child. And after $180,000 in, in medical expenses and failed IVF treatments, and then trying to figure something out with a surrogate mom or whoever it is, um, they have gotten to places in their life where the big fancy career doesn't seem quite as important as it once did. And they, they could have done with a little more serendipity of unplanned, straight up um, happenstance that would have left them, you know, as they're heading into their 50s and their 60s and 70s, you know, there's a lot of lonely people out there. And mm -hmm. what I love about what you do is, yeah, the college degree is nice and all the rest of that stuff, but you're helping people realize a full life. And to me, that's what, that's what you do. And college is a tool, but the child is a real gift. And that's the way I see it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the part of a full life is also uh, pursuing the, your passions. You know, yes. like when I think about our, our students, they want to be nurses, they want to be teachers, they want yes. to, you know, um, work in social justice. And I think our society tells them that once they have a baby that they can't pursue their passions yeah. anymore. And, and I think when you're a parent who's able to pursue your passions, you're a better parent to that child, right? You're able to totally agree. Whole life, right? Is, is totally the best agree. gift that we can give to our children. So I think it all comes full circle is like helping these young people discover and pursue their passions and be, you know, be able to fully be present and, and show up for their children in that way is also mm. a huge gift. Well, Jeannie and I were so lucky because the first 10 years of our marriage, and then we did sort of what you did, although you, you, you know, your husband is not the person you had your first child with, but we were fortunate. And that would have been my case, by the way, if the girlfriend before Jeannie had gotten pregnant, it would not have worked out looking back. So that's just the yeah. luck of the draw. I threw the dice, stupid. I mean, you know, who were those people? But I, we were lucky. And then in the end, you got lucky too, but in a different sort of a way. But that was a different journey. But that said, I look back at the support I got from my parents and they sort of did for us what you're doing for so many people. And so, and then I look at what, we're doing for my children as caregivers, we're not telling them don't have a career or realize your dreams, you're a mom now, stay home. It's exactly the opposite. Right. I'm doing full-time childcare as a, as, as a grandfather. And I don't mean my wife does it and I pretend, I do it, okay? Right. This is for real. Um, because I believe in my daughter-in-law having a career as the bursar at a school. I believe in my daughter, Jessica, having a career and she's a CEO of a company now. I have encouraged them to go do those things. And the same thing for my son, John. I do the school pickups. He's been working from home, but he's still working after COVID, I mean, because I believe in, in them. Have, and I know they're happier because they have vibrant, real careers. Right. So my whole thing about childcare is not, hey, don't do family, do, you know, this is, children are great, they're so much more important, stay home. I'm saying rather to grandparents, hey, the traditional model is grandparents help raise kids so kids can do this other stuff. Right. That's the traditional model and our culture's fallen apart. The traditional model's dying out. I don't know why, we'll get into that on another, I write, a, I have a whole chapter on grandparenthood in my book, but interestingly enough, another little fact that nobody wants to talk about, the single biggest predictor in the Berlin study of grand, of, of aging longevity is not whether you smoke or not or have diabetes, it's whether you have daily interaction with a grandchild. Yes, I've seen that study. I sent it to my mom. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you want to live a long time. Don't freeze your brain when you die. Don't upload your head into a computer and live forever. Just play with, do some, do some child care 
and step up so your yeah. daughter and your son-in-law and whomever can have careers. Right. <laughs> and if that doesn't happen, then how about we pay for some really first-class childcare that's creative right. and not all screens and crap and build layers of support. So I'm totally with you on that. Don't get me yeah. wrong. That said, as I look at my own life and what I treasure most, it's not the high points of any piece of career I can point to. It's the relationship with, the, with my children and grandchildren. And I'm not alone in that. I think that's pretty common. But yeah. you wouldn't know. But you wouldn't know it if you go to an American college and hear them talking to kids, right? Because they're telling them all about everything else except what actually, when they get to be my age, they're going to care about. How do you right. figure that, Nicole? Right. Answer that. What do you think? Why are they doing that? <laughs> well, I think it reinforces all the the systems that are in place, right? You you've got you got to talk to people about those things so that that's what they go and value when they go out into the world. It kind of keeps the machine going, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think, uh, was it Warren Buffett who I heard in an interview or read in an interview, one of the uh, the, the most influential things for his sure. success, he said, was was his wife. You know, his, yeah. he's been married, I think, twice and, um, and choosing the right spouse. And yeah. so I think that goes back to what you're saying around, you know, here's Warren Buffett who you know, by traditional standards is successful because he's, you know, made all this money, but he didn't cite some algorithm for making investments or, right. you know, he talked about one of the biggest influences to his success was choosing the right spouse. Um, so relationships are really key. Well, you know, who's written a lot about that. And I disagree with his politics sometimes because I'm more to the left, but David Brooks, the New York Times columnist mm. has written column after column after column, sort of warning younger people saying, you know, you're really going to regret this path to success if it foregoes relationships, you know, doing the next cool thing is not what you will remember 20 years from now. Right. And when you look at all the studies on loneliness, you know, not committing to anybody, not staying put, not doing any of these things which former generations took for granted. Like, you know, if I had moved 10 times for career, I wouldn't be living next to my son. I couldn't help him because I'd be right. off chasing the next stupid thing. I mean, you know, and I'm sure I could have earned more money if I moved to the West Coast when I was in the movie business, whatever. But I'm not saying I did that as a sacrifice. I did that because I love our house and I do hands-on carpentry and stuff and I, it's a project, but thank God we got quote, stuck where we were because we've been able to build something. So I think even the upward mobility, we encourage people like, hey, it's a no brainer. They're offering you more money. Go, wait a minute. Then you're going to be the next statistic of someone who doesn't have anybody nearby in a community to help you with childcare or that you know and that loves you. I mean, these are very obvious, basic things we've sort of let go. Uh, and, and I think your books, you know, Pregnant Girl speaks to um, these issues directly and also obliquely because you're talking about the importance of a, of a kind of a, a life that's one thing. It's not like well, I'm having kids and then I'm trying to get this. You're putting the package together. Do you think that's a, a fair description? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what I'm saying is why can't, why can't young families have the whole package? That's what and, I think. Um, right. And I think, you know, people tell them they can't and I'm saying, you can, and my life is an example of that. The work that we do at Generation Hope is an example of that. And hopefully it inspires more people to, you know, help to create this reality, you know, for other families, for other yes. young families, you can have the whole package. Yeah, and I would encourage people watching this in conversation with Frank Schaefer with Nicole Lynn Lewis, author of Pregnant Girl, to use all the links we're gonna put up to get in touch with her and her organization, support them, and it's a no-brainer, buy the book. And, um, you know, I said at the beginning of, the, of, of this interview, and I'm gonna say it again, I delayed the publication of my book so I could rewrite sections of it and include quotes from Nicole and endorse what she was doing because at last, the cavalry had come over the hill and rescued me from uh, saying, look, you know, having too few examples of people to point to. And so Nicole uh, and her book came into sight um, through a, a, an interview I was listening to on Fresh Air, and it was like, ah, I can breathe a sigh of relief. Now I can point to someone and say what she said, do what she's doing. <laughs> so, you're, you're, so don't, you know, keep going, Nicole, because basically you're my number one example of someone <laughs> who's doing you. everything right. Um, and the other little piece of housekeeping is that um, please go to the porchcourses.com. Porch Courses run by Gareth Higgins, a friend of mine who's the founder of the Wild Goose Festival. 
And we're doing a course in uh, January, February, uh, based on my new book that's coming out, um, Fall in Love, uh, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And I, I quote Nicole in the book, I talk about her as an example of someone who's done something because our lives overlap so closely in terms of just our experience of family and children. So let me just uh, wrap up by asking you how your family is right now. I know they're kind of, you've got a, a big age range and um, how are things going? And we're good, everybody's good. You know, um, our oldest, as I said, she's, she's finishing up college, which has not been easy with the pandemic. So we've yeah. been you know, helping her navigate that. And then we have a 12 year old uh, who's in seventh grade in middle school and she's been doing really well, even with you know remote and going in person. And then we have our, our three tornadoes now. It was two tornadoes when I was writing the book and that was our three-year-old and our five-year-old boys. And then I just had a, a fifth child, our, our youngest Devin is four months old. So he's now a part of the three tornadoes uh, <laughs> running yeah, through our great. house. Yeah. But everybody's good, everybody's healthy. And you know we're very blessed and very fortunate. You came from some sort of a spiritual background as well. You know, I've sort of walked away from my evangelical fundamentalist background. You talk about it a little bit. Um, your mom, I think, was she Roman Catholic? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Catholic. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Because a lot of people who watch my pod listen and watch and do these things, because I've written books like Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God and other crazy for God, my, my spiritual journey out of evangelicalism, but not away from a certain spirituality and sense of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? You, you were sort of a, you went to church, you did all this and where, where are you at now? I'm not asking you for a theological declaration, but I'm just curious. And then, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. I grew up Catholic. My mom, um, you know, my mom was raised Catholic. My mom raised my, you know, my daughter and my sister and I Catholic. Um, my dad wasn't necessarily, you know, religious. Um, and when I, um, I probably started going back to church, you know, in college, I wasn't really connected with a church and then, um, started going back to church, um, after college and my, my, uh, husband who I had met in college, he was raised, um, kind of with a Baptist background. And so, you know, we, we knew we wanted to get married. So when I graduated from college, we started looking for a church together. Mm -hmm. um, and so we go to a, a non-denominational church in the DC area and we love it. We've been there since before we got married. We're going to mm -hmm. celebrate 14 years together in a couple of weeks, catching up to you and Jeannie. Um, yeah. But yeah. And so it's been great. I mean, I think what was important for both of us was to find a church with practical application, you know, wanting to mm -hmm. walk away from a, a sermon or a service feeling like, okay, I have some concrete things that I know I want to do to, you know, do good in the world or do good in my home and in my marriage and, um, and to feel connected, you know, and, and to have a community. Those were the mm -hmm. things that I think were really important to us. So um, that's kind of what we found at the church that we're at now. Yeah, and I, it, the the church you're in now is it a predominant? You know, when you look around, are there white and black people together, and brown people and other people, or is it like so many other churches? It's pretty much black or white or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty much it's a black church for the most part. Um, and you know, it's been interesting trying to find a congregation that is really and truly diverse. Uh, yeah. You know, I I think that has been a challenge. And I think it, it, it always has been a challenge. And I think it continues to be a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, wrong with going to a church, which is predominantly black or white or whatever. It's just too bad that that's part of the national landscape, because you'd hope there's some exceptions. And it's always amazing to me to think the Southern Baptists and whatever, 18, whatever it was, broke away from the General Baptists in order to support slavery. So we, right. <laughs> there have been problems with Christianity. Yes. <laughs> In America, no problems like slave <laughs> galleries in your church. So, you know. Uh, anyway, we're we're kind of wrapping this up. I just want to let people know that we have links to Generation Hope and Nicole's fantastic book, Pregnant Girl, um, and our on our show page. And 
we want everybody to support you. We want your book to just keep selling and selling and selling. And then I want you to write another book telling us more things. And I also think you have a novel in you. So um, you. I'll, I'll be out there promoting that when you do it. You're just, you're a hell of a writer, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you so much. And congrats on your upcoming book. I have uh, my advanced copy and I can't wait to dig in. Start and a I, podcast and interview me. I know, you know, so many people have said it, but I feel like there's so many wonderful podcasts, yours being one of them. Like well, what I, we could do is, is, is combine, you know, if you ever want to do a podcast, have mine, you know, and then interview <laughs> me and other people or come and co-host one with me. Cause you're yeah, just, maybe I will. Yes. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can't go to black and white churches, but we can do a podcast. We can do, we can do podcast older together. and younger grandparent, parent. <laughs> that wouldn't be a bad thing. Yes, exactly. I would love that. Well, literally all the best. And, and again, uh, you pass on to Grace Mangino, my thanks I for will. her responsiveness and her sweetness of getting us, because, you know, we had tried to book you and then you were having the baby and everything yes. else. And we, she hung in there with us. It's wonderful. Thank her for making this work. And tell Grace to work with you on bringing us, bring Ernie, my producer, because with me, it's like just throwing it into the, the you know, <laughs> thing. It just goes off in the wind. Ernie actually gets things done. So tell Grace to contact Ernie and just say, look, we have this young couple or we have this guy or this girl or yeah. whatever who have a good story to tell. And if you wanted to be on there with them and help them tell it, fine. But, you know, I would love to talk to some young people about their journeys. No, thank you for that invitation. We'll definitely work on that. That you've helped, yes. And you let us know if you need someone to get out there and help raise funds, whatever it may be, help support you. You let us know how to, you know, what you need practically, because I really, really believe in what you're doing. Thank you. We'll definitely take you up on that. We, we appreciate just the platform to be able to share more today. Well, you are much loved. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.